Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, I am joined by Ian Cognac. Welcome, Ian. Thanks, Jeremy. Great to be here. Ian is a strategic account director over at Salesforce. And more than that, he's been uh, in sales for 18 years, has closed over $100 million. And as you get it from the title as strategic account director, he's closing seven to eight figure deals. He's done that just across two companies, across Rico and at Salesforce. So he spent half the time at Rico, half the time at uh, Salesforce. So he is a, a long timer in companies. We're going to talk about a lot of things, obviously focused around enterprise sales, but also in general peak performance in sales. Ian, to get to know you first a little bit, I'm a keen reader, so I'm always on the hunt for new books to read. I'm curious, what are you know maybe what's one of your favorite either sales books or books in general that inspires and motivates you? I straddle between personal development books and sales books. The one I'm reading right now, you probably have heard of, Four Hour Workweek. My uh, big long-term vision is lifestyle design, be able to uh, live anywhere with my family over the summers and work anywhere. And that part of my life is just kind of beginning right now. I've been grinding for 18 years in sales and I read it, I think 10 years ago. Now I'm rereading it for, uh, for the second time. And it's opened up a lot of new ideas in terms of my coaching um, and some of the other things that I, that I want to automate. And one of my favorite books is Napoleon Hill's Thinking Grow Rich and Outwitting the Devil, which Outwitting the Devil is not one of his best known books, but he's kind of the father of personal development before Tony Robbins, before a lot of these other folks. And Outwitting the Devil is really about like facing your inner demons and becoming the person you were meant to be. And I think that's relevant for a lot of people and especially those in, in sales. <laughs> I would talk about the long timer thing as well. So you stayed eight years in one place. You're you're now eight plus years in another place. In what ways have you found to get yourself out of your comfort zone at work despite working in the same places for long durations? A lot of people ask me that interestingly. They say, well, you're pretty conservative. Two companies, 18 years. I've never heard of that. For me, I want to preface it. And I would encourage anybody who is younger in their career or job hopping every two, three years. The first year of a, of, of a role is learning. So you kind of have to like, count out the first year as a wash. The second year is when you really can start developing. And the third year plus is when you skyrocket. So the people that are often performing the best at Salesforce are the ones who've been here for, you know, five plus years. You know, it takes time. It takes time to develop yourself. It takes time to learn a company. And I've always been a believer to stay the course unless you are at a peak growth, unless you are done growing, then it's time to do something different. But for me, I didn't stay the same job at the, at the companies that I was at. So I always mixed it up, but I did stay at the same company. So I knew the culture and the products and how to get things done. I think that that's key is to mix up the jobs you're doing. So at Rico, I was promoted nine times in 10 years. I, I've always mixed it up, even at the two companies that I was at, so that I didn't get stale and stagnant. I think that's really important for people is just, you know, when you feel like you're not growing anymore, it's time to make a change. You know, you're there at Rico. People would think that's it's crazy to step away from that and go into an individual contributor role. Why do that? Why why make that move? <laughs> so I was killing it at Rico. I was the number one director of sales. I got all kinds of accolades and I was running a big business. Well, that industry did not pay well. Okay. That industry, our peak AEs were making like 300. And I was the number one director of sales carrying a huge bag and I made 250. And that might sound like a lot. I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know what software offered in terms of upside income. 
and I was reading Forbes magazine. I still remember it was, it was 2009. No, no, I'm sorry. It was 2012. And I saw an article that talked about enterprise software and it said the average AE at Salesforce was making $300,000 a year. So the key word that jumped out to me was average. So here I was, the number one director of sales, huge responsibility, and I was making 250. I'm like, I am playing the wrong sport entirely. Yes, I'm in sales, but I'm in the wrong sport. I'm on the wrong team. If that's what the average make, rep makes, I wonder what the top reps make. So sure enough, I started researching. I knew someone who was there, who was at Rico, went over there. And he's like, well, yeah, your top reps can make a million plus dollars. I'm like, whoa, I didn't even know that was possible. So I um, was determined to get into Salesforce. And I wasn't uh, able to come in as a leader, right? Because I didn't have that enterprise software experience leading software teams. So I hustled and I applied several times, didn't get the job until finally I met a guy, Grant Wood, who agreed to hire me and give me a chance as an individual contributor. And, you know, I didn't know that I was going to stay there for eight years. At that point, I thought maybe I'll get back into leadership, but that wasn't necessarily my goal. I had already, being in middle management, managing managers, you do move away from the customer. And I love being in front of the customer. So I was already a little bit unhappy with the day-to-day role. I was managing a lot of like reporting and forecasting and I was managing managers away from the customer. Day-to-day, my life wasn't great. I wasn't making as good money as I thought. I just knew there was a better way. Before we get to Salesforce, one other question about Rico is I love to learn from people about who they learned from. So as you think back to your days at Rico, who sticks out in your mind as being someone who was transformative in the way that you thought about sales? Uh, Definitely my first boss, Tim Harris. So I got into sales. I was a teacher before I started in sales. I actually lived in South America for a year. I told you I love traveling. And I um, lived and I taught English in Venezuela. And I came back and I had no idea what I wanted to do. But I knew I had to make a lot of money because I had a girlfriend back in Venezuela who I wanted to bring, bring over here. And I decided to go into sales. And my first managers basically told me, I will guarantee your success, Ian Koniak. I will guarantee your success. I'm like, how are you going to do that? He's like, you just do what I say to tell you to do. And that was that was it. It was blind faith, right? So Tim Harris taught me the simple formula that activity yields pipeline, yields results. And what he taught me specifically is if I do two appointments every day and I set two appointments every day, I cannot fail. So if it takes me 100 cold calls or if it takes me 20 cold calls, it doesn't matter. I need to set my two appointments because if every single day I'm setting two and every single day I'm doing two appointments, that means every week I'm going to be doing 10 appointments And based on our numbers, I was creating four new opportunities and closing one sale. Even as a bad rep with no experience, I could close 25% of my deals, right? And so I followed his formula, took me a few months to get ramped. And then sure enough, I was on my way. So he he taught me to get out of my head and not worry about doing things I don't want to do. And to your point about being uncomfortable, I mean, it was very uncomfortable because my territory was Koreatown. I didn't speak Korean. It was a territory that underperformed. I had to go up and down buildings, cold calling, doing 25 a day. Let's transition a little now to, to Salesforce. And um, when we were talking before we pressed record, you said it's something very interesting, which is I don't really sell product anymore. And I thought that was a curious statement. I didn't want you to expand then because I wanted to, to learn in real time. So what do you mean when you say, say I don't really sell product anymore? I have a team of 30 people, Jeremy, that work with me. They are not on my team reporting to me. They are dotted line. So our Tableau footprint in one of my accounts is a million dollars. They are $2 million. We have a, a dedicated success manager, a dedicated AE, an RVP there. So I'm managing in a matrix environment now where my job is to identify the biggest challenges or problems that a company 
has my customers and align our team and the right resources to solve those problems. Typically, I'm selling deals that are, you know, six, seven, and eight figures. And I have a team of people, if they just want some Tableau licenses, that's the Tableau EE can take care of it. If they just want to add their footprint or expand, or maybe there's a new department, I have an enterprise AE that works for me that will take those deals, any deals under 150,000. So my role is truly to make sure we are aligned to the C-suite and we are focused on solving their most immediate, pressing and impactful problems, and then bring in my team to do a lot of discovery and help them on their journey of digital transformation. The result of that is that we sell a lot of products that are spanning across our entire bag, right? So think Tableau for visualization, think MuleSoft for integration, think sales and service cloud for sales optimization and service improvement, think portals for customer experience, right? So depending on what the problems are, because I have 50 plus products, right, I can solve almost any problem at this point. And so... Um, the only problem I don't solve is outsourcing your data center. Leave that to AWS and Azure and you know some of those cloud infrastructure companies. But for us, it's applications, it's users, it's business impact. We sell across all departments. So my job's literally to, to find the pain and get to the highest level of power and then make sure they understand our approach to helping partner with them and you know, addressing problems that, frankly, they may have, may have had for years and years and been unable to solve themselves. The other question I had about this, and you mentioned CS, like the customer success side and understanding what their most pressing problems are. I've been thinking a lot about CS and the interplay with sales recently. When companies in general talk about customer success, the language these days is not around so much as, as much around usage and adoption and so on. It is about business value, right? The business value that they sought when they called upon you to solve the problem. And yet I find most CSMs are mostly reactive uh, maybe there's like three stages. I don't know. There's a reactive stage. There's another stage, which is like, I'm going to send you what your usage and adoption and users are. But very few companies actually track what is the business problem the person was trying to solve and then hold themselves accountable to updating you know, the executives that they work with on a periodic basis. Do, do you guys do anything along those lines? And, and like, how would you recommend people can execute programs like that? I mean, the reality of it is, is time. The job of a customer success manager is to make sure your clients are happy and they renew, point blank. That's what matters for current customers is that they're happy and they renew. So what sits under that, right? Well, if they're not using the product, they're not going to be happy. So you have to look and see you know, the usage levels, the adoption, make sure they're taking advantage of the capabilities of what the product has, which naturally will lead to the business results. So the second part of that is, is reactive in the nature of this is not working right? We had this downtime. We, we don't know how to use this. We are having trouble with this particular feature. We need this integration. Customer success gets a lot of that. And their job is to guide and point the customers to, you know, the right things, you know, whether it's how to log a service ticket or use the portal or a community where they can get support, or maybe it's um, professional services, right? So the CSM role is very, very hard because they are basically in demand for customers and they should be, right? We want them. We don't want them to be customers to be frustrated and not voicing it. We want them to be able to come to us. So I found that the best way to get CSMs to focus on more strategic initiatives, like are you getting the value that you sign up for, which is more long-term than immediately fix my service ticket that no one's responding to, is to make sure that upfront, when you make the sale, your CSM is involved. Typically, when you're selling a larger deal, you are showing a business case. You are showing them the expected outcomes 
that they have to show their CFO in terms of, hey, this will accelerate our time to value. This will improve our sales, especially like something like sales loft where you know it's directly driving revenue, right? They're going to say, we're investing this much in the software. When are we going to see our return? And are we seeing that return? So if you bring in the CSM up front and say, I want you to meet with them every month, make sure they're getting the adoption, they're getting the results, they're driving that. But every quarter, we're doing quarterly business review, we're making sure we're measuring results in terms of their increase in sales for the users that have it versus don't. And you bring in your executive sponsor from the client and say, work with your CSM to make sure this stuff is measured because the people bring the company in, especially if they have to sell it and they have to put a business case and stand behind, hey, we're going to get this return. They want to make sure they can go back to their boss and say, look, I told you so. Why? Because then that gives them permission to go get more money for more things they want to do. I think just communicating that upfront and aligning your exec sponsor who bought it with your CSM to have those quarterly business reviews. Every time I've done that, they have welcomed that. They have wanted to do that because they want to make sure we're giving them the return that they signed up for. We talked about how to quantify business value for products that where you can actually trace it to revenue, trace it to cost savings and so on. You'd also mentioned, for example, earlier, the one of your accounts, which had a $2 million in Tableau relationship alone, a BI, a business intelligence tool like Tableau is way harder to quantify like what the financial impact is. How do you communicate, actually, maybe more specifically for, for, you know, for that customer, what business problem were they trying to solve with Tableau? And how did you then go back three, six, nine, 12 months after that and say, here's what we did for you? This particular customer, and I can't name names, has a challenge with delivery. It takes them a long time to deliver the products and services that are being offered. They have 40 or 50 different products, just like Salesforce does. And each of those products has engineers and integration people. And the problem is that the customers buy multiple products from them, right? And those products need to talk to each other. And they're not all sitting on one platform, as nice as that sounds. A lot of the development in the the delivery time is spent specifically on the actual integration of those products before it can go live. So, so what? Who cares, right? Well, what is the problem with that? I think the number one thing that AEs need to ask and that I ask in my clients is, so what? Who cares? What's the impact on a slow delivery? Well, first of all, how long does it take to deliver? Well, it takes about six months on average. Why? Okay. They explain it. Products don't talk to each other, et cetera. Okay. How are you planning to solve this? Well, we're, we're putting a scrum team. We have 20 people on the ground. They're all building these connectors to each other. So we're working on one platform. How long is that going to take? Well, it's a two to three year product. So now all of a sudden I know the problem and I know the cost, right? So simply asking the questions and getting good discovery, I realized five problems then and there. Number one is the problem of customer experience. It takes six months to get what they're, what they're, what is the impact in the time? Can customers leave you in, during that time? Um, what are customers doing in the meantime? Do you ever lose seals because it's going to be too long for them and your competitors are quicker, right? So that's that's a problem. The second problem is cost, operational cost. You've got 20 people on a team that's trying to figure out how to integrate this over a three-year you know, time period. Is there a faster way and a better way? Well, we just happen to have an API management platform that lets products talk to each other and communicate each other, and it's called MuleSoft. So I'm immediately thinking, I need to talk to MuleSoft. I need to talk to the CTO about MuleSoft and see if that will help them accelerate their development efforts to get the products to talk to each other. So there's a cost and a time problem. The third problem and the biggest problem in this case that this client actually mentioned was revenue recognition. So they could not 
It's not like SaaS where Salesforce, you turn it on, you start billing immediately. They could not bill the client or collect money until it was actually on site and the client said it was delivered. Okay. So for them, it was a six month delay in cash flow and revenue that was of huge concern. So I, I learned that one of their top initiatives is accelerating time to value. And so that's exactly what we were focused on. And then I just gave you kind of three examples of the impact there in the visualization in the case of Tableau, right? How can we get visibility to what products take the longest, to what regions take the longest, to why things are taking so long? And then can we have a way to make sure the right experts are matched up with the right implementations at the right time? Can we build upon previous uh, successes that we've had to accelerate the implementation cycle for similar type of you know, migrations that they're doing. So it's like, literally, we, we have three or four ways we can solve the problem. One is MuleSoft. The other is visualizing the data so they can make more informed decisions. But it doesn't matter what the solution is. What matters is the impact of the problem itself. And that's why I spend so much time understanding where the cost is. And then what I'll do is in the business case, I'll just map back. Here's what accelerating time to value will do for revenue, for your customer experience, and for your operational costs. And that's the metrics that I'm going to go after. We're approaching that time, but I have a, a no thread left behind, right? It's, it's like a, every one of these podcasts is sort of a story. And there was one thread that I didn't pull at, which is you went over to Salesforce and you went directly into the marquee national enterprise segment. And then you said to yourself, I, I don't know if I can do this. Was it mindset? Was it skill? Like, what did you have to go back and learn by moving, quote unquote, you know, down to commercial? Not mindset. I doubted myself and I felt awful about myself because I wasn't performing, but I was certainly trying. I was trying my damn hardest. That's where mindset people get messed up is when they're not trying, they're not giving it their all because something's blocking them, right? So I don't think I, I don't think it was mindset, although for a lot of people that I coach and mentor, it is. For me, it was skill. It was the skill of understanding how to get in to power messaging that power is going to relate to, listen to, pick up the phone to, and want to talk to you about how do you message so that you can get to a C-suite to get their attention. Number one, that was a key skill. Number two, how do you connect with power once you're there to get them to trust you and open their doors and let you into their world for deep discovery, which I didn't have the skills for too. Number three, it was the skill of actually how to run an enterprise sales cycle. I'm going to correct myself. It was mindset. I had a mindset of internal. My success matters most, okay? I had the mindset of my commission, my W2, my stack rankings is what matters, okay? What shifted in the past four years is I've shifted to a mindset that my customer success is what matters. If I can make them successful, if I can help them with their biggest challenges or problems, and I can really make an impact on their business, my commissions are going to come. And that's been a huge shift for me, this inward to outward mindset when selling. Last but not least, you know, we talked a lot on the, this show, but uh, episode, but other times on the show with people about enterprise selling and, and how to run an enterprise sales cycle. What is something that people underappreciate, drastically underappreciate, or what's something that challenges the conventional wisdom on running an enterprise sales cycle that you believe firmly in? What people think about the enterprise is that they're so different than the mid-market or the commercial. And frankly, it's not that different. And I know that contrasts what I just said a little bit. So let me elaborate. The motion of getting to power, running discovery, and tailoring your solution should be applied no matter who you're selling to and what size. The difference in enterprise is the bureaucracy, 
which people have to go through to make change, right? These are systems and processes which have been in place sometimes 10 plus years. There are people that brought these in that are, you know, basically beholden to their systems because they bet their careers on these things, right? That's what people underappreciate is how I would say some large enterprises can be so attached to something, even though they know it's not the best thing long-term for their business, simply because there's egos or personal things involved. So I think what is really important, the how to how to get around that is you have to get to a change agent. You have to get some to somebody who is concerned about the, the big picture, right? Who wants to disrupt the status quo, who wants to, you know, append the apple cart, so to speak, and really, you know, knows that what they're doing today is not going to get them to where they want to go tomorrow. It is thinking big and thinking strategic. And so getting to power and getting to specifically power that has a goal of changing the way things are done is really critical versus just finding a problem in a business case and all the other stuff that I mentioned that's also important. Uh, I think you just answered the question I had in my mind was, does that change agent also need to have power, either budget or like intense organizational power? I think the change agent does have to have power. Because if you want someone who says this sucks and, you know, it has got to be a better way. I came from this outside company. Here's how we did it, but I can't do anything. And no, no, you can't. You said, well, I would run for the hills if I had that conversation. So that's part of the discovery process during that first meeting is, have you ever brought in a technology or platform, you know, like this, what was that process? Ideally, you want to get with someone who knows how to navigate and get deals closed. A lot of people just simply don't know how to buy enterprise software. And so having somebody who is new to a department is great. Having somebody who holds the budget, who's at the C-suite is even better. But, you know, I think the important thing, if they, if they don't have the power themselves, they're not afraid to go to power and bring you into power to present the ideas because it's going to make them look good. It's going to help them get promoted. And frankly, it's the right thing to do. So a change agent, they don't have to have signing power, but they certainly need to have power to get you in front of the right people. And I think that's really important. If they can't get you in the front of the right people and they can't do it themselves, then they're, they're not the right champion and they're not the right change. They're not a change agent. Change agent has to be able to implement change. Yeah, I think you just hit at something that's really important is I think a, a lot of reps as they're going through medic, they're checking the box. I mean, more they do more than that, of course, but they, they feel this urgent need to check the box. And there is a higher standard for a champion. And, and the bigger the deal is, the more complex the organization, the more the bureaucracy, the higher the standard is for who the champion is. Well, uh, Ian, I, I know that, you know, you're, you're super active on, on LinkedIn. I know you uh, help and coach a lot of folks. Anything you want to share with the audience before before we say say goodbye? Yes, I have a newsletter every week. I send out a sales training video, and it's over a thousand people now. I make a new sales video, so if you like any of the content, if it resonates, ping me on LinkedIn, send me a connection request, and I'll get you a link to sign up for the newsletter. Support me with the YouTube. Um, the more people, the bigger impact I can have, and that's my goal right now for what I'm putting out there. Yeah, and I saw you've got a, a site out there as well, ianconiak.com. So I-A-N-K-O-N-I-A-K.com. I presume people can sign up for the newsletter there as well. They can sign up there and they can sign up to get on the wait list for, for coaching as well. So that's to learn all about me, go to the website. But if you want content and sales training, LinkedIn is your place. Brilliant. Thank you so much for being on today, Ian. Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate your time. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.